This is a podcast from the Gender and Authority Network, part of the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute. It's a recording of our seminar on November 16, 2016, at Christchurch College, Oxford. So, Anik is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in Music at the University of Bristol, and she works on Elizabeth Lutyens Lutyens. and Edward Clark's relationship to the European avant-garde, British music, and each other. And her wider interests include musical modernism, especially in early 20th century Britain, and women composers. She studied musicology and philosophy at Heidelberg University and at the Humboldt University Berlin. And she completed her PhD at Royal Holloway, supervised by J.P. Harper Scott. And she has an article forthcoming in 20th century music entitled Magical Serialism, Modernist Enchantment in Elizabeth Lutien's Au Saison au Chateau, and one book chapter in an edited collection on Elizabeth Maconchy entitled Beauty Between Beasts, From Walton to Maconchy to Britain. And she's organising at the moment an interdisciplinary conference on couples in 20th century art, which will be on in April 2017. So if you're interested... Her core her papers is on the website for the conference, which is collaboratingcouples.wordpress.com. Please join me in welcoming Anika. Thank you very much, Julia, and um, everybody for being here and making it through the dark weather and inviting me. I, I do feel honoured and pleased to be here. And um, although, yeah, it is very sad that we can't have the second paper, which I would have loved to hear myself, but um, I hope that my paper has got a few questions which may be worth your time in discussing as well. So, Elizabeth Lutyens was the outspoken enfant terrible of British 20th century music. She carved out her place in several different, partly overlapping and partly contrasting, goldfish bowls, as she caught those professional and private spaces in which she operated and which defined her identity. One of these bowls was that of British modernist composers, um, particularly small and lonely one, as she felt at times. Another one was that of women composers, more crowded and supportive, that one, but um, one you rarely got out of once you'd been put in, and put in you were without failure, with most of its occupants not being in there by choice, as Martin's remarked. There were other difficult enough goldfish bowls she inhabited during her life, that of daughter of a famous architect, Sir Edwin Martin's, mother of four children, or divorced woman. However, it was the first two that defined her entire professional life and made an international breakthrough as a composer doubly difficult and unlikely for her. On Lottie's 60th birthday, she was congratulated in a rather idiosyncratic fashion by the music critic of The Listener, the BBC's weekly organ. On the question of why Lottie's had not received the same attention on her anniversary as fellow British composers Michael Tippett or Alan Rawsthorne, Stephen Walsh maintained that, I quote... Lutyens' music is among the least obviously appealing of any currently being written by leading composers of her generation. To my ears, there has always been an element of dryness about her music, and it doesn't take an anti-feminist to suggest that it may have something to do with her sex. Female creative artists have always been rare, even in literature, the most immediate of the arts, while in music, at least, the gap between men and women in performance is small, if indeed it exists. Here again, it is most memorable at the very top, where interpretation fades into visionary genius, a quality which is demonstrably anti-feminine. And with Lutyens, even in maturity, 
It remains true that her music often makes structural points which are hamstrung by the ordinariness of her creative thought. End quote. This is 1966. Of Lutyens's pupils and collaborators, the composer Richard Rodney Bennett and pianist Susan Bretshaw flew to her defence in the next issue of The Listener, only to be replied to by Walsh that, I quote him again, I pointed out that the music meant little to me and began drawing conclusions therefrom about the nature of female creativity. Mr. Bennett and Miss Bretshaw reversed the process and seemed to expect that because Lutyens is a woman, she is entitled to special treatment as a composer. End quote. It's probably in this context not necessary to spell out the arguments that underpin this text, or these texts rather. And the whole charade would have been quickly forgotten, I think, had not Walsh concluded in the latter reply that, having landed himself in hot water, it was better not to review Lutyens's music in the listener in future. Although her music continued to be played on the BBC, therefore, it was all but cut off from the discourse of contemporary British music in this popular magazine for the coming years. Nevertheless, Lutyens was beginning to be perceived as an important member, not just of the women composer Goldfish Ball, but also of the small British modernism ball. For her, it was tragic that her, her star only began to rise in the 1960s, not least because it happened after the death of her second husband, Edward Clarke, who had provided crucial inspiration and encouragement since 1938, and who was not to witness the onset of her modest success anymore. Where he's known at all, Clarke is usually remembered as an influential BBC programmer between 1927 and 1936, when he was single-handedly responsible for the corporation's famous modernist music politics. Clark had a colourful past. He had been Arnold Schoenberg's first English pupil before his dreams of, conducting, uh, of a conducting career in Germany were shattered by the onset of the First World War. His contacts to composers, conductors and critics of the European avant-garde through the International Society for Contemporary Music were as legendary as his fine sense for modern music, and he was allowed pretty much free reign in the young BBC Music Department's programming politics. That is until um, his career broke down a second time in 1936, when he resigned from the corporation in a row over a programming issue during a European tour of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. To a young Elizabeth Lutyens, however, disillusioned with the conservative attitude prevailing in the rest of the country's musical life, Clark seemed like a firecracker thrown among peacefully clucking chickens. Yet when she met and fell in love with him in 1938, she began a professional dance on the volcano, which she would keep performing for the rest of her life. Today, Clark is less well-known than Lutyens, um, even less well-known, I should probably say, than Lutyens, and details of their relationship are shrouded in mystery. Um, she had the letters of Clark to her burned um, after her death, so, which for my project is a bit of a disaster. But okay. <laughs> um, it is a relatively rare thing in a couple working in the same field for the woman to turn out to be the better known of the two, although, of course, examples like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera or... George Eliot and George Henry Lewis may spring to mind straight away. For Lutyens, the situation quickly became very complicated after she'd met and partnered up with Clark. She felt that she constantly struggled against the tacit suspicion that her musical style was copied from Schoenberg, transmitted by his pupil Edward Clark, and that those few performances her works did receive were due to Clark pulling strings behind the scenes of the International Society for Contemporary Music or the other organisations he managed. And as I'm beginning to dig a little deeper into the um, history and psychology of this couple's work in music, larger questions have, have of course, reared their head. For example, was the work of Lutyens and Clark a collaboration? 
Those who knew her well have been surprised whenever I suggested the term to describe their um, working relationship. Because after all, although Latins was a composer and Clark was a music programmer, administrator and conductor, they hardly worked together on you know, a single concrete piece of music. And they were both very careful to highlight Latins' independence as a composer. Or another question, did the relationship to Clark support or actually hurt Latins' composing career? After all, Clark was persona non grata with the BBC when the two became a couple. He would never again hold a steady job in music or elsewhere for the rest of his life, thereby making Latians her family's only breadwinner on a permanent basis. And in the early 1950s, finally, he even became involved in a court case that laid bare his embarrassing financial, professional and even private situation involving Latians yet again. Questions of canonicity also pervade this narrative. Who becomes famous, who doesn't, to which degree, whose music is performed, whose isn't, and how do these two relate to each other? I think we probably agree that Latians had an additional impediment to overcome on many levels simply because she was a woman. But we are not doing her a favour, I think, by citing her notorious phrase that, I quote, the question of women is one that has dogged, or should I say bitched, me all my life, and by just letting the case rest there. Latiens was more than aware herself that there were other powerful factors dogging her professional life. Her enemy of choice, in fact, was the BBC and its music politics. Together with most of her contemporaries, and indeed many British composers of all ages, she felt that contemporary music was not receiving the airtime it deserved. When William Glock became the BBC controller of music in 1959, the tables began to turn in favour of modernists like Latins. She began to receive commissions from the BBC up to a proms commission in 1961 and later became a frequent enough speaker on musical topics and an expert on discussion rounds on contemporary music in the BBC. Nevertheless, Latins never found equilibrium in her relationship to the corporation and this also had to do with Clark. The corporation had supported them both after the Second World War by commissioning Latins with feature and film music and sometimes Clark was called up to conduct the recording sessions of her music. But Clark's continued request to conduct the BBC Symphony Orchestra once more, as he had done in the 1930s, were rejected consistently by the BBC. And further employment beyond this feature conducting and one 1948 talk series on early 20th century avant-garde music was not offered to him. BBC policies were strict, and from the corporation's point of view, it, there was good reason to bar Clark from uh, rejoining the party through the backyard, as it were. Latians, however, fiercely loyal as she was, never forgave the BBC and made a point of not missing any opportunity to point out Clark's achievements for the new music in Britain and how he, and by association she, had been blocked at every turn in their efforts. The most important factor during her professional life, however, was the unevenness of her work. Latians has a large output, counting over 150 opus numbers, over 30 film and feature scores, over 130 scores for television and incidental music for, for the theatre. She was proud of being able to write music very quickly, even claiming to have written her string quartet number six in one single 12-hour sitting. On another occasion, she reportedly asked a film producer about the music she was commissioned to write, do you want it good or Wednesday? But the speed of her composing and the number of working commitments means that there is a large number of pieces of a clearly less convincing quality than some of the best ones in her catalogue. A few people who knew her well have said to me that they think Latins just wasn't a very good composer. A reminder of the critic of the listener, perhaps, who had complained that her music did not appeal, that it was dry. 
This problem about quantity and quality of output is a serious one, and one that I believe stems from um, three aspects, mostly. The first one, I think, is um, the aesthetics of what I will call her functional music, um, for the argument's sake here. Although she was proud of her film and feature and television scores, she did not consider them part of her artistic legacy, and viewed them as traditional painters would have viewed a drawing of the handbill, for example, craft, rather than art. Latin's court is large part of her oeuvre journalism. She was very good at it, but the fact that she did not consider it art made her, I think, A, permanently overcommit to work on two levels, and B, trailblaze the analytical disregard for her film scores, which are not at all always serials or 12-tone music, and certainly deserve more critical attention than they have so far received. Um, I'd like to play you um, a short extract here. This is an example from uh, her 1965 score to um, the film The Earth Dies Screaming. Um, yeah, she was very proficient in horror films. She's a kind of a hammer and amicus mostly. But um, this is The Earth Dies Screaming. Stop it here. So this is this is the very first music that comes in. So we have various scenes there, um, directly at the beginning of the film, of the train that crashes because its its driver is, is lying dead in the in the train, and uh, a car that just crashes into a wall because its driver is dead, and this plane that goes down. And then the plane goes down, the smoke comes up, and then the music comes up as well, um, and that's the first bit we hear. Um, the second aspect, I think, of problems. Um, with her output, quantity, quality, and canon um, is her serialism. Latins began to compose with Twelfth Tone Rose in 1938 and had her first serial piece, the Chamber Concerto No. 1, premiered at the 1939 Warsaw Festival of the International Society of Contemporary Music. It is true, however, that back home in Britain, post-tonal music was still widely considered a bête noire. By dedicating practically her complete concert music over to this technique, she probably deterred many potential performers and listeners alike from the start. In fact, although it is still difficult to get a proper overview of her work, simply because scores are as rare as recordings, um, it is probably fair to say that serialism did not always serve her well. 
And on the other hand, some of her best pieces take considerable, considerable liberties with this technique. I'm going to give just one example here. That's the, um, the Lament of Isis on the Death of Osiris, short piece for soprano solo, which is taken from the opera Isis and Osiris, which Latins wrote in the late 1960s, based on the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The opera flopped at its premiere at Morley College, London, but Latins extracted this short piece written for soprano Jane Manning, and it became one of her best loved. Typical for Latins' vocal music is firstly the choice of soprano in vocal music, and secondly, the large range of this voice part, soaring high and abruptly dropping. In the later part of the piece, Isis begins a kind of incantation, those elements of nature which are affected by the death of Osiris, god of rebirth and the fertile flooding of the Nile. Isis repeats the melodic line for those text sections, on occasion sacrificing the flow of the 12-tone row for the sake of recognisability. Um, let's have a look at that. I'm going to stop it here. It is a bit too quiet. Unfortunately, I couldn't get the we couldn't get the volume turned up. Apologies for that. You know, if it comes to the worst, we can huddle around later if you want to hear it again. <laughs> but this is basically the, the quality of recordings that, for some of her pieces, I'm, I'm dealing with. Some are commercially recorded, but most are not. Um, which um, so there are pieces which do not respond to their text as well as as this piece does or which do not seem to be able to just concentrate and hold expression in their serial structure. And that brings us to the, to the third aspect of her problem with quantity and quality, her attitude to composing. When asked in an interview which of her own pieces she liked best, Lutkins once remarked that she would have stopped writing music altogether were she convinced that any of her pieces were satisfactory. Although she withdrew many of her early pre-serial pieces, she did not often do so with her pieces after the time to serialism in 1939, even when she was aware of their weaknesses. This was a risky attitude. Putting on music cost a lot of money, and slots for contemporary composition were always few and far between anyway. By pushing for performances of pieces she knew to be potentially problematic, and additionally insisting on more and more rehearsal time for them, she was probably not doing herself any favours in the narrow goldfish bowl of contemporary British music. Why did she do it then? I think underneath Lutkin's insistent and extrovert appearance with the eternal cigarette, the serialism in the 40s, the wild parties with Dylan Thomas in the 50s, the green fingernail varnish in the 60s, 
Underneath that all lay the deep concern about her professionalism, a concern which, in my opinion, she shared with many women composers, not just of the 20th century. There are different strategies, obviously, to deal with this concern. Latin's, as I think, was anticipation, quick attack, and surprise withdrawal. So, for example, according to her autobiography, it was fear of being measured by the high standards of her parents, the architect Sir Edward Lutyens and the writer, and I suppose we would call her activist today, Lady Emily Lytton, that made her choose music in the first place. Um, music being the only art no one in her family knew anything about, except her suffragette aunt Constance Lytton, who was a grand pupil of Clara Schumann. When feeling threatened later on by the competition among young London composers in the 1930s, Lutyens turned to serial techniques which no one else around her was using. When the partnership with a Schoenberg pupil Clark threatened her independent ownership of this serialism, she claimed that she had seen precursors of the technique in Purcell's keyboard music, long before having seen the first score of Weben or indeed Schoenberg. Finally, when she felt overtaken by a young generation of British composers who were picking and mixing serial techniques with ease in the 1960s, she lashed out against their unreflected use of something she had fought hard and in isolation to make her own. When I wrote these last sections of the paper, I sometimes um, interrupted myself several times during each sentence because I felt so torn. So on the one hand, um, I wanted to say what I think are the reasons for Lutyens' problems with the canon, um, this messy triangulation of um, psychology, music analysis, biography, whatever else it may be. But on the other hand, I'm aware that we would not normally talk about men composers in this way, necessarily, even if they had faced similar problems. Sir Benjamin Britten's diaries, for example, can be at least as dismissive and demanding at times as anything I know by Latins, and his music can be uneven too. William Walton suffered from bad flares of writer's block throughout his life, etc., etc. There are many examples. Yet, for the likes of Latins or Elizabeth McConkie or Ethel Smythe or even 19th century symphonists like um, Louise Adolfo Lebeau, we tend to read their ego documents as collections of hindering factors rather than crucial aesthetic background from the artist's workshop. I think. And the glass ceiling is thereby still in place, despite, or partly perhaps, I'm just going to say it, because we are so sensitive to how all these different factors came together to successfully hold these composers back. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our seminar recording. For more information about the Gender and Authority Project, please visit torch.ox.ac.uk slash gender and authority. And you can subscribe and download our podcasts from iTunes U or stream them on SoundCloud.